From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An old idea is new again, and Colorado thinks apprenticeships are the future. Then, maybe you've seen them at Red Rocks or the Pepsi Center, sign language interpreters. They don't just bring lyrics to life. Because we interpret a lot of jam bands, so you can imagine a lot of that is showing the guitar, showing the drums, and we do a lot of dead shows, and 100% you're showing the intensity of the beat. That's in our series about life in Colorado through the lens of language, this time American Sign Language. Later, a little-known act of heroism during World War II. A train full of munitions caught fire. It could have obliterated an English town. There were luckily two very brave men aboard the train that sacrificed themselves. A Colorado comic book writer brings the story to a new audience. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's an age-old vicious circle. You can't get a good job without experience, but you can't get experience without a decent job. Enter an age-old idea that's back in vogue. Newbies get paid to learn, and the hope at least is that they get a job faster. It's what brought Ivanka Trump to Littleton Monday. She was at Lockheed Martin to discuss federal support for apprenticeships. The private sector knows what jobs they'll be creating. The government can help, the government can amplify, reinforce through policies um, and funds, but the government can't lead. The private sector has to tell us the skills that are in demand. And what we've tried to do at the federal government is be much, much more responsive to the skills in demand in local communities. Of course, her father, the president, used to host a show called The Apprentice. In June, the U.S. Department of Labor announced it was investing more than $180 million in apprenticeships, with more to come. And to learn how apprenticeships might transform Colorado, we're joined by Noel Ginsberg. In 2018, he ran for governor largely around the idea of a skills gap, that tens of thousands of tech jobs are open with no one trained to fill them. It's why he founded the statewide youth apprenticeship program CareerWise Colorado. Noel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And Victoria Long is an apprentice through CareerWise. Hello, Victoria. Hi. So again, Noel, you see apprenticeships as a way to fill Colorado's skills gap. What kinds of jobs go unfilled, and why is that important for Colorado's economy to fix? Well, it's interesting. Whether we have a strong economy or a weak economy, there's always these highly skilled positions that are very difficult to fill. My history is in advanced manufacturing, and we could never find the talent we needed. So we would end up poaching from other companies or from other states. It's really not a good talent solution. And at the same time, without that model, you leave a lot of Coloradans behind. That is, you are not hiring locals because the locals don't have the skills. You talk about advanced manufacturing. Manufacturing of what? Give us a sense of what these kinds of jobs are. So it can be medical equipment. It can be high-tech manufactured products. It can be automation systems. So it's not the way we used to think of manufacturing. But at the same time, modern youth apprenticeships are also in banking and finance. In companies like Aero Electronics, where it's technology, based companies that are hiring apprentices. Okay, and that's where you are, Victoria. Aero Electronics, this Fortune 500 company in Centennial. You're 18, just graduated high school. And I understand that you discovered what you want to do in your life, really your passion, through this apprenticeship at Aero. How did that happen? So I am so grateful for the opportunities that CareerWise has given me. I found out about the program through my engineering teacher, actually, and he was the one 
that encouraged me to go for this amazing opportunity. And I did. And I was so excited when I received my position at Arrow. And it's it's a great program because students are able to go in, gain the real world experience and realize what they actually want to do with their life. And what is it you want to do? So I work in project management right now as an IT project manager at Arrow, and I absolutely love it. It is so much fun going in every day and seeing projects from idea to finish. Projects like what? So I've worked on a few different types of projects, anywhere from merger and acquisitions to real estate to network security Ton, at, tons at of 18, stuff. <laughs> you've done this. Yes, yes. And I you're have. getting paid for this. Yes. Okay. And you also envision going to college, so it will be both. Mm hmm. So I will be going to the University of Colorado, Denver in the fall. I leave in about a month, which is super exciting. And project management was not something you were even aware of as an option before this? It's it's so funny, actually, because I did not know what I was getting into when I submitted my application. I just thought it would be a great experience, a great job, something to step out of my comfort zone. And it actually ended up being something that I really was passionate about. Why an apprenticeship? I mean, there's any number of ways you could have gone, internships, or you could have gotten a different kind of job, maybe a lower paying one or one that didn't require as many skills. Yeah. So when the apprenticeship was brought to my, when it was brought to me, I saw it as something that could open so many doors for me. And that is what has been shown to me through the year that I've been with my company. No, it's interesting. There's evidence of apprenticeships going back to like the Code of Hammurabi, 1700 BC, obviously not new. But did the U.S. somehow lose sight of their benefit? We did. We viewed for a long time as apprenticeships only designed for the trades, of which they're very effective. But in today's economy, we're training for skills like project management, like IT network administration, like getting into banking and finance. You wouldn't think that you could start as an apprentice and end as the chairman of a bank. But in fact, in other countries, that's exactly what happens. Why not just go a traditional college route? Well, there's... The, the reality of it is only about 28, 30 percent of Americans actually graduate with a four-year degree. So we – it's actually a high-risk, high-cost high option where a youth apprenticeship can make it more affordable, gives a student multiple options. How does so it make a, it more affordable? Because as a part of the apprenticeship, you can earn college credit through the apprenticeship. And the fees that companies are paying to participate will also help – uh, pay for some of that post-secondary education. Is this more than, um, you know, just a nice thing for companies to do? Like, what do they get out of it besides a, an altruistic contribution? Well, because actually this isn't about altruism. This is about build, building the future talent pipeline for companies in America. We're losing the talent war in this, in the globe. And youth apprenticeship is a way to build that talent early so that young people have a chance to get a really good-paying, high-paying high career. And at the same time, companies have a true return on investment for this. It's not just about doing good. It's about building strong business. Is Victoria unusual in that she'll be combining an apprenticeship with college? I wouldn't say she's unusual. She'll probably, in the end, be about 
30 to 40 percent of our apprentices that will do both options. In my company, Intertech Plastics, we have an apprentice that is in his third year. He's going to Metro State University to get an engineering degree while he is continuing on with his apprenticeship. And then he hits the ground running in a way after totally. graduation. Are you saving money on college as well then, Victoria, as a result of this? Yeah, absolutely. Not only am I able to make money with my job and go to school I'm also gaining college credit, which I can use towards school as well. What's been the hardest thing? That's a hard one. Probably the scheduling, but the good thing about... It's a lot to juggle. It, it is, yeah. I went with hobbies, social life, school, work, but I, I manage it. And the program and the schools are all very flexible with scheduling, which is really great. Is there financial support for companies that take part in apprenticeships? No. In fact, we encourage that we don't pay companies to do this because there's a return on investment. This is a unique process where companies are spending about $12,000 a year in wages and support fees to, to actually participate. Very briefly, is the Trump administration putting its its money where its mouth is on apprenticeships? Yes, they are. They're making real investments to support other communities around the country. In fact, we're participating in a contract to support other states and their launching of modern youth apprenticeship through this administration. So CareerWise is becoming a model for other states. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. We heard from Noel Ginsberg, founder of CareerWise Colorado, that statewide youth apprenticeship program. Victoria Long is an apprentice at Aero Electronics in Centennial. And we spoke after Ivanka Trump's visit to Littleton Monday to highlight federal support for apprenticeships. There's a story of heroism from World War II that's not as widely known as the invasion of Normandy or the Battle of the Bulge. In 1944, a train full of munitions was headed to the small English town of Soham. As it approached, the conductor saw that one of the train cars had caught fire. An explosion would obliterate Soham if it reached the town. But there were luckily two very brave men aboard the train that sacrificed themselves by taking apart the portion that was on fire and getting it as far away from the other 43 cars full of ammunition that would have obliterated the rest of the town. So only their car, the main car and the first car exploded. And then what's even more miraculous about this story is that the whole town came together after this disaster. And they rebuilt the train tracks overnight so that the remaining 43 cars could get to the front line to help everyone. That is Haley Austin of Bennett, Colorado, who was inspired by this true story and adapted it for the Commando comic series in the UK. She's the first American to write for them and joined me via Skype from Scotland. Haley, were you a big fan of comics growing up in Bennett, Colorado? You know, actually, I wasn't. I had read maybe one or two growing up, but it wasn't until I went to university at Creighton University in Nebraska that I actually got really into comics and went from wanting to become maybe a literature professor to being like, no, I will only do comics. This is my only path in life. Wow. What was the comic that was so transformative? (laughs) It was Mouse, um, M-A-U-S, by Art Spiegelman. It's a biographical telling about his parents surviving Auschwitz. So I guess the historical kind of comics have really grabbed me. 
I remember the first time I saw Mouse as well. I don't think at that point I had read anything but like Archie comics, you know, and and superheroes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I remember being so surprised that comics could deal with incredibly serious things. Is that the experience you had? That was it exactly, that they could deal with things that was so different from literature because you've got that visual aspect. So there's almost more to kind of go through and contemplate. And there's visual metaphor, there's visual references to other things. And it just kind of opened up that whole world of comics aren't just one for kids or too funny. Okay, you told us about that World War II story that you were inspired by, the train story. Uh, This is for the issue titled Steel Inferno. How did you find out about this chapter of history? Actually, I was just looking up stories that weren't well known. Um, I knew it kind of needed to be situated in the UK. In school, I knew some stories, but I wanted something that was a little different that people hadn't really heard about. And the rail disaster just really stood out to me because of how heroic everyone was and how much of a disaster was avoided. And so when I saw that, I kind of went, well, what if it was actually a Nazi spy? Because they kind of determined that they didn't really know the cause of it, but it was likely just because the car was full of ammunition. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what if it was a Nazi spy and it was this attempt to kind of shake the war or like ignite the German war effort. So that's what I wrote. Are all the Commando comics, are they all about World War II? No. So it's about any war time. They've got like Viking ones, but the majority of them are World War II. I mentioned that you're the first American ever to write for this British comic series. But you are also exceptional in in being a woman in this world as well. Help us understand the place women do or do not occupy in the world of comic books. Yeah, Commando is thought of as this largely male-dominated comic, simply, I think, because it's a war comic. But in reality, even though I'm one of the first women to write in the title for 30 years, women have been a part of Commando since the beginning as letterers and now as editors. The majority of the editorial team are women Mm. uh, right now. And they're beginning to get more female voices, not only from the writing and editorial team, but telling stories about women during the war, which I think is also really important. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I think of the folks working to crack codes. Many of them were women. Oh, exactly. Women flew planes. Women resisted. They were spies. They were so many different, really interesting roles that I just think we haven't talked about as much right now. I understand that your next comic is about women. Tell us what it will touch on. Yeah. So it's about uh, the women of the French resistance just before France is liberated from the Nazis. So I'm looking at, once again, basing it off of real women, but telling kind of a fictionalized account of their resistance efforts. Is there someone who springs to mind who has a particularly fascinating story? Oh my gosh, yes. So the women in my comic are going to be all French, but there was an American agent who went to England and became like a British spy. 
they dropped her in Paris and she parachutes down, but she only has one leg. Her other leg is wooden because she shot it off in a hunting accident. And she becomes one of the most renowned spies in the French resistance. So much so that she was known as the limping woman or the woman with a limp. And they put this huge kind of price on her head. She fled across the mountains into Spain, which are treacherous and would take weeks of travel. Gets there and says, you need to send me back, but I need to look different. So essentially they disguise her as this old grandma. And so she goes back and continues kind of these resistance efforts of sabotage and getting information to different places as this old kind of grandma. And they did like makeup and like filed her teeth down and everything so that she looked much older than she was. Well, let's be sure to name her. Uh, What's her name? Virginia Hall is her name. Virginia Hall. And that story that you told us, none of that is fictionalized. That That's just, that was her life. That was her life. Wow. She's an amazing, amazing figure that I can't believe we're not taught about more. If you could pick one comic to write for, what would it be? Oh my gosh. That is a great question. <laughs> for the publisher, I would choose Image Comics because they're creator-owned comics And they've got a very different style for the most part from kind of the Marvel and DC. But if I could write on a title, it would be the female Thor title that they've got going right now. And they just announced the movie for it in 2021. So I'm really excited about that. The female Thor. I think Image Comics, they do The Walking Dead, don't they? Yeah, Image Comics did The Walking Dead. They've done tons of stuff like that. Uh, you are from Bennett, Colorado, as we've said, but you've been in Scotland for three years now. And uh, just as, as someone who's fascinated by language, I wonder if it has changed your accent at all. You don't necessarily sound like someone I would associate from Bennett, Colorado. <laughs> yes, it has changed my accent. I've got a wonky accent now. I can thank my Scottish boyfriend for that. <laughs> um yeah, I have lost my Bennett accent, but I have gained a weird one. Haley, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Colorado's Haley Austin is the first American to write for the award-winning UK comic series Commando. She's getting her doctorate in comics at the University of Dundee. She mentioned the linguistic changes that she's experienced, and it just so happens that this week CPR News is focused on language, how it can be a lens to understand Colorado better. CPR's Sam Brash has the story of interpreters in hospital delivery rooms. (laughs) It's morning in a recovery room at the University of Colorado Hospital in Aurora. Beatrice Navarro admires her newborn daughter, Ainoa, her thick head of black hair, her rounded nose. Navarro sums it up in a single word. Hermosa. Gorgeous. Ainoa wasn't in the plans when Navarro immigrated from Mexico to Colorado last January. Soon afterwards, she felt something move in her abdomen. I came here and they told me I was pregnant. Five months pregnant. Navarro worried about delivering a child in a foreign country. When the doctors decided to induce labor last week, the hospital provided someone to translate, a professional trained to relay critical messages between her and her doctor, just like this. Here at this hospital, I felt really, like, comfortable. 
Y cuando tú haces una pregunta, ellos lo hacen igual. And when you ask a question, they do it the same. The English speaker you're hearing now is Liz Lubelski, another Spanish language interpreter at UC Health. She says it's the job of interpreters to almost disappear. I call it interpreter mode. When I'm interpreting for my patient, I am not Liz. I am the patient's voice. So whatever the patient says, the way that the patient says it, I say it too. So if mom is a little like rambunctious and she's like, oh my God, what's going on? I have to say it the same. Ay, Dios mío, ¿qué está pasando? But there are moments when Lubelski snaps out of interpreter mode. Maybe when a patient seems confused or frightened. And in that instance, the interpreter can say, the interpreter will clarify and then you can ask your patient, did you want me to repeat the question? Is there something that you would like to say to the doctor? Maternal health advocates say these moments can be critical, and that in-person interpreters are just way better at seeking clarification than the most common alternative, calling up an interpreter over the phone. So when you have any like delays over the phone, you do, you lose cues, you lose time. That's Kayla Frawley with Clayton Early Learning, an organization that advocates for expecting mothers. She says it's much easier for a person in the room to detect when something is amiss and let doctors know quickly. And so in those really high emergency scenarios, which we see all the time, it can be a matter of saving someone's life. But providing in-person interpreters isn't always possible, says Scott Suko. He runs interpreter services for UC Health. Sometimes at 3 in the morning, it's, it's going to be difficult to find somebody. Or if it's a very rare language, they might be on another call elsewhere in the city or just unavailable for different reasons. Federal law still requires some sort of interpretation. In those cases, the hospital is trying out a new option. Essentially, it's an iPad on wheels. But for Ann Baring, who manages the mother-baby unit at UC Health, it's a revelation. The best invention in interpretation in my 35 years of nursing. Baring gives a quick demonstration of the machine. She can choose from over 250 languages on the system. She picks Spanish, and a trained interpreter in Juarez, Mexico, instantly appears. Oh my god, there he is. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? Great. In complex situations like deliveries, video lets an interpreter pick up on hand motions, maybe notice grimaces of pain. But here's one thing it can't do. Connect moms to others who can assist long after they give birth. I just try to help them and show them where it's like a... Afghan grocery store, like a Persian grocery store. This is Malala Mumandi. She's an Afghan immigrant who interprets Persian languages with UC Health. And she got her start at the hospital as a volunteer, helping new arrivals. Yes, because uh, our people, uh, they went through a lot. Like uh, some women, they come here as a widow. They don't have a, like no husband, no kids, no family member. And they're kind of lost here. And a lot of her work is still about making people feel at home answering questions about a pregnancy, commenting on women's Facebook photos once they have kids, and just checking in. So at the hospital, we, I just uh, convey her message to the doctor and from doctor to the patient, but outside, it's a community. And in-person interpreters like Mumundi are often the ones who tie those worlds together. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. People who are deaf and hard of hearing go to concerts. Maybe you've seen sign language interpreters at, say, Red Rocks. As part of our series about life in Colorado through the lens of language, let's meet one of these music fans and an interpreter. Natalie Austin co-founded Flow, a Denver agency that specializes in arts interpreting. And Rachel Berman is an American sign language instructor. 
She spoke through an interpreter about what it's like going to concerts. It's amazing. I'm able to be part of the experience. I'm right there. I think people who are hearing might make assumptions about why people who are deaf go to concerts. They might wonder why you would go to a concert. Help them understand. Well, there are a lot of hearing people who seem to think that deaf and hard of hearing people can't enjoy music. And they need to understand that deaf and hard of hearing people have a variety of hearing levels. And it's easy for them to think that they all are completely deaf or profoundly deaf. But there are some people who can hear some. They have some residual hearing. Maybe they use a hearing aid, they have a cochlear implant, or maybe they don't have anything at all and they can still feel the beat. So everyone has their own preferences, their own ways to enjoy music. And it's very visual. We can see it. Plus, we're provided the words through the interpreter. So overall, it's just a different way of viewing and experiencing the music. But we still can enjoy it. What is your experience? Is it that you have some hearing or is it vibrational for you? Both. I do use a hearing aid on one side. But it doesn't help me understand the words. It's very blurry. It helps me recognize environmental sounds, uh, what's going on around me, that sort of thing. And it does help me with recognizing music, lower tones like the bass. The higher pitches are a little bit more difficult, and I struggle with those. So I can take advantage of that residual hearing that I have in combination with the visual portions provided by the interpreter. So those two things together help me understand and follow the music. Do you prefer particular artists because they use a lot of bass? Oh, yeah. I mean, really, I am not a huge music connoisseur, if you will, but I am still exploring. I'm still on a journey with music and figuring out my preferences, but I can tell you that my favorite concert is Metallica. It was very deaf-friendly. I could feel the bass. I could feel the beat. Plus, the performance was amazing. I think it's important that concerts have great performances in conjunction because if you just have a band, you know, saying the words, they're just singing and not doing a whole lot, maybe you have a couple of instruments, it's really difficult to connect. But for Metallica, when they added that performance, plus the drummer and all, you know, all the percussion, the light show that they had going on, it was just such an enjoyable experience. I'm so curious, Rachel, if Metallica knows that their music resonates with you as a deaf person. Like, what a cool thing it would be for the band to learn this about themselves. Yes, yes, yes. That would be awesome. Natalie Austin, you interpreted that Metallica concert at Red Rocks. How was that? That was one of my favorite concerts to interpret, favorite concerts to experience, because it was such an accessible performance for so many reasons. Like Rachel mentioned, the the fire, the lights, the drumming, you could like feel it in your soul. It was such an incredible show. I have a million questions for you about interpreting difficult songs. If an artist is rapping, for instance, and it's fast and it's improvised, uh, that just sounds like a tough day at work for you. I would agree with you. Yeah, rap definitely is one of the most difficult genres, I would say, to interpret because a lot of times 
when they do improvise, it's nonsensical improvisation. And so they're just doing it because the words maybe rhyme with each other, which in sign language, that doesn't always translate to something that makes sense to a deaf audience member. So that can be, yeah, like you said, a fun day at work. Okay, give me an example of a rapper that you've had to interpret for. So Chris Brown was an interesting rapper. And then Vanilla Ice was actually, I, I'm a hardcore Vanilla Ice fan, so that was a lot of fun. They did a throwback to the 90s show at Fiddler's Green that had a lot of the old school 90s rappers. And so that was a great time. All right, stop, collaborate and listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. I think of one of my favorite bands, Sigaros, is a band that invents words. So it's not even that the words strung together don't make sense. It's that they're not actual words. What the heck would you do as an interpreter in a situation like that? So you provide something visual to go off of. So I interpreted Seussical the Musical, for example, oh, at our data center. That is based and on Dr. Seuss, who is also an expert at gibberish. This is true. And Rachel was actually our language coach for that show. And so it was her responsibility to go through the script and come up with signs for the Dr. Seuss, like, as you said, gibberish, and come up with ways to make it visually appealing, especially for a, a children's audience. Because, Rachel, you're an educator. Yes, I am. I teach ASL full time. Someday we'll go to Sala Salu. Sala Salu. Sala Salu. Well, this makes me think that interpreting for music. Uh, is not just about interpreting the words. It's about interpreting, perhaps, the feel of a song. Do I have that right, Rachel? Yes. Yeah, I mean, really, it depends on the audience as well, who's there. Um, it's a really big challenge for the interpreter to try to gauge the audience member's preference. Maybe they prefer more English word order, or do they prefer more ASL, American Sign Language word order? Do they want to follow those concepts and that message? As for me, I prefer a mix. I like to have the English and the ASL, but they're so completely different. Well, this is fascinating. So help us understand, Natalie, that ASL has words in a particular order and English has words in a particular order. You've got to figure out which approach to take. That's correct. So before a show, I like to inquire to see who the audience members are. And hopefully I know those audience members. And so I know if they prefer more of an English word order, if they prefer more of conceptual signs and ASL word order. But are you also interpreting the beat or the swell of a particular instrument. 100%. Because we interpret a lot of jam bands as well. So you can imagine a lot of that is showing the guitar, showing the drums. And we do a lot of dead shows, you know, different versions of dead shows. And 100% you're showing the intensity of the beat because you are providing that access for the deaf audience members. Hearing audience members can sit back to the jam and feel the different levels. If it's just a soft jam, when it gets more intensified. So we have to show that through our bodies through replicating the instruments with our hands and also our facial expressions are a big part of it. Gosh, there might be 15 instruments on the stage. 
That is a true story. You, you've got to decide which one to interpret. I suppose whichever is most prominent at a particular moment. I do. Yeah, I listen to hear which one kind of strikes me as being most prominent, and then I'll switch between them as well. So if you know the keyboard is just as prominent as the bass, you know, I'll do bass for a while, then I'll show the keyboard for a while, then I'll switch to the drums, and just to to mix it up for the deaf audience as well to make it visually stimulating, so they can see I'm not just you know drumming over and over. I'm switching from the drums to the bass to the keyboard. Rachel, as someone who prefers an interpreter at a concert, how limited are you? to concerts, like are there specific shows or specific venues, or can you rely on an interpreter to be virtually anywhere you want to be for a venue? It really depends on the venue. As of right now, it's getting a lot better. There are more places that are providing interpreters, but you have to request them. You know, sometimes I'm not aware of something going on that may provide an interpreter. So then Natalie's the one who actually tells me, hey, there are some shows they are going to have an interpreter there. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go. There are some where I have a great relationship with that venue. And I know that there's a great history of them providing an interpreter. So if you were to ask for one, I'd likely be honored. But there's an agency, uh, Natalie's agency, that posts different events where interpreters are provided. And it's very, very nice to have those options so I can check out different shows. It's not incumbent upon you to pay for that, though, right? Oh, no, no. No, I do not pay out of pocket. The venue is the one who provides that. I just buy the ticket. And then is it important where you sit in the venue? Yes. Does that that mean good seats? (laughs) Well, sometimes there are some places who have very odd policies and rules and regulations, such as if you buy a, a ticket, you're not guaranteed to be right in the front with a good view or you're not guaranteed a certain seat. There are some where you are. Because um, typically we need to be in the first or second row. Mm. To So I have to actually double check with the venues. Of course, it's more responsibility on my behalf to have to call and explain where's a seat, what does it look like, where the interpreter is going to be situated, that kind of thing. So there is a lot of lay work I have to um, be responsible for to ensure that my experience is the way it should be. Natalie, you specialize in artistic interpretation. Uh, how specialized a field is that versus, say, interpreting in a school or in some other place? Surprisingly, a lot of interpreters don't enjoy performance interpreting or theatrical interpreting. Um, it's something I grew up in the theater, grew up going to concerts, just love music and have done specialized training to learn how to interpret music, how to interpret concerts. Natalie, do you remember the first song you interpreted in ASL? I actually do. And so it was for my interpreter preparation program. We were given an assignment to interpret a song, and I chose It's Raining Men for by the <laughs> Weather Girls. And that was one of the funnest experiences. And just because it's a fun song, I just thought it was hilarious, the concept of men raining from the sky in sign language, because sign language is literal. So I literally men were coming down from above my head. So it was very fun to interpret that song. Wait, will you show me that sign? It's raining men. Okay, so, so I'm going to describe this. you set it up because you have a man like falling from the sky. Okay, so you're, so you're making almost like a walking figure with two yeah. legs. And he's falling almost mm-hmm. like he's on a parachute. Yep, it's raining men. Yep. <laughs> Okay, I understand that you, Natalie, have interpreted Rent, the musical. Yes. Okay, I think of the song 
525,600 minutes. How hard is it when a number, and a sizable one at that, comes up in a song? That song actually, because the pace of it's quite slow, assigning a number isn't complicated. The song in that musical that is complicated is La Vie Bohème, just because it goes so quick and it's slightly nonsensical as well. Some of the things that they talk about are really silly and ridiculous. And so coming up with signs that deaf audience members will understand what you're saying. But they also, because it is nonsensical, they have a an equal experience as hearing audience members like, oh, that's so crazy. This is an important point. It's not that folks with an interpreter are never confused, because it's often that hearing people are confused in a particular setting. Correct. Yeah. All right, Rachel, what is the next concert you plan to attend? Oh, yeah. Actually, in August, I'm going to One Republic. A local band, in fact. Yes, they are. And I'll, I'll just be honest right now, I don't know a whole lot about them. But I just picked that concert based on recommendations from friends who have listened to the music, who are hard of hearing, and have listened to their music, and they've gone to a lot of their concerts, and a lot of concerts more than I do. And so I asked, which concert would you recommend that have that deaf experience plus the music? You're going to have a good time. I think they're really good. I'm very excited. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you. And Natalie, thanks so much. You're welcome. Natalie Austin, who co-founded Flow, an ASL interpreting agency for Denver Arts, and Rachel Berman, a music fan and an ASL instructor at the University of Northern Colorado. She spoke to us through an interpreter. This conversation is part of CPR's series about understanding life in Colorado through the lens of language. Check out the other stories at CPR.org, including one about the many languages once spoken on the streets of Pueblo. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. 
Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, it, it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Research suggests that people who live in rural areas have better working immune systems. CU professor Chris Lowry says the reason may be in the soil, and he's studying whether you could capture the benefits in what you might call a farm in a pill. It might help people with everything from allergies to psychiatric issues. Lowry spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Let's start with that fundamental premise that folks who grow up in rural areas have stronger immune systems. Why do urban people seem to have less resistance to some diseases? So this has been worked out most clearly in the context of allergies and asthma. And people that grow up on farms, particularly dairy farms, seem to have protection against allergy and asthma. So the rates are much lower in children that live on farms and even in adults that have been raised on farms. And what is it exactly that people are exposed to in rural areas that gives them better immune systems? So there was a recent study that provided some insight into this this question. They studied children that were growing up on Amish farms in Indiana and compared these to children that were growing up on Hutterite farms in South Dakota. So These two populations are interesting because they share a common genetic origin. However, their farming practices are very different. Mm. So the Amish tend to live on single-family farms. They use horses for plowing the fields. They uh, are in close proximity to the farm animals, whereas the Hutterite populations use industrialized farming, including tractors. And what they found was that the dust from the, the homes of the Amish children was able to prevent allergic airway uh, responses in mouse models. And they, they also demonstrated that this is because elements of the dust are interacting with the human immune system and the mouse immune system in a way that provides protection against allergy and asthma. So is it that the immune system is overreacting? That's what we think. So as humans have moved to urban environments, the idea, which is really based on the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis, is that we've lost contact with certain types of microbes that throughout human evolution have provided us with a, a diverse microbial environment that provides protection against inflammation. Now, in urban environments where we don't have exposure to those types of microorganisms, our immune system is, is hyperreactive. In, in effect, it's an inappropriate level of inflammation that you find in people uh, growing up and living in cities. You also believe, as do other scientists, that the immune system plays a role in mental health. Can you talk about that? That's right. We know that chronic low-grade inflammation is a risk factor for multiple psychiatric disorders, including depression, uh, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, in fact, um, in, in military personnel, in, the, in Marines, we know that individuals that have high biomarkers of inflammation at boot camp then get deployed, come back from deployment. They're, they're at higher risk for getting post-traumatic stress disorder after combat. 
And so this, this inappropriate level of inflammation, we see that as a risk factor. It's consistent across different stress-related psychiatric disorders. And our, our thinking is if we can design interventions to prevent this inappropriate inflammation, then perhaps we can lower the risk of, of these disorders. I've heard different things that depression can cause autoimmune disorders and that autoimmune disorders can lead to depression. Is there something of a chicken and egg question? Well, you, that's, a, that's an excellent comment. We know that there is an association, and I'll, I'll um, talk about a recent study where they looked at rates or the risk of developing autoimmune disease in post-traumatic stress disorder compared that to other psychiatric disorders and also to healthy populations. And what you find is that people that have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder have a much higher risk of also having an autoimmune disease, any autoimmune disease. But they also have higher risk of specific autoimmune diseases like thyroiditis and inflammatory bowel disease. This is exactly what we might predict if individuals that grow up in urban environments don't have the capacity to control the immune response and consequently the immune system overreacts even to self-antigens, which is what, what is causing the autoimmune disease. What's to say that people in rural areas are less prone to the types of issues you're talking about, like PTSD and depression? The most convincing study was a recent meta-analysis where they looked at multiple studies that have compared urban and rural populations and find that overall in Western urban countries, including the United States, there's a higher risk of depression compared to rural environments. We've also conducted a study recently in Germany, and we we wanted to test this idea that people that grow up in cities have an overactive immune response and that this may be a risk factor for psychiatric disorders. And we, we tested that in, in, a, in a laboratory environment, and essentially that's exactly what we found. When we compared people that grew up on farms, uh, that were exposed to farm animals, and compared these young men to men that grew up in cities of over 100,000 people without pets, we found that simply in response to a, a psychological stressor in the laboratory, people that grew up in the city had a much exaggerated, a much stronger immune response compared to people that grew up on farms. So just quickly, let's go to farm and appeal. We mentioned it earlier. What is it that you're trying to achieve? So we're looking for a way to to utilize um, something that we find in the soil that can mimic the effects of growing up on a farm. And we're focusing on soil-derived bacteria. These are called mycobacteria. And humans co-evolved with these mycobacteria throughout human evolution, and it seems that they've co-evolved with humans in a way that they can drive anti-inflammatory responses. So they can prevent this inappropriate inflammation, and they can do so for long periods of time. So we we find in our preclinical studies that a single a single injection can protect against exaggerated inflammation for for at least a month. Mm. Um, after the injection. We also find that it can prevent stress-induced anxiety. It enhances fear extinction after development of, of uh, conditioned fear and, and simply seems to promote stress resilience. And these again, these effects are long-lasting, lasting weeks to uh, at least a month. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with Chris Lowry in January about the idea of a farm in a pill. Lowry is an associate professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder. Finally today, the Underground Music Showcase returns to Denver this weekend. The three-day festival features more than 200 acts, most of them from Colorado, playing all along South Broadway. This year, DBUK will perform. It's the Gothic Folk Project from Denver music veterans Slim Cessna and Munley Munley. In San Francisco Bay, San Francisco Bay, I swim most every day, I swim most every day, I take us from the Golden Gate. I'm dodging, I'm dodging, I'm dodging, I'm dodging. They are always surprised, they are always surprised. Saying it's alright Saying it's alright Salt water burns our eyes I cry it's natural It's natural It's natural It's natural This is In San Francisco Bay from DBUK's album Songs 9 through 16 Co-founder Cessna is best known for fronting the rowdy country rock band Slim Cessna's Auto Club he was on Colorado Matters earlier this year to explain why DBUK's sound is more laid back. I think we just wanted to prepare ourselves for growing older. The touring schedule and the live show, it's very physical uh, with Slim Sesta's Auto Club. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, lot of running and kneeling. And we're and... all getting older, <laughs> and it hurts um, our bodies. So we kind of had this idea that we could make something else where we would sit down and play something quiet and beautiful. DBUK performs Sunday night at 7.30 on the Knockout Stage at the Underground Music Showcase. At CPR.org, you can see the performances that CPR's Indy 1023 will carry live on the radio. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Under that in-house, when they drop their loads, I only shout.